friends and welcome to episode seven of cool story with david j mcneil thank you so much for listening i really appreciate your support today's guest is my friend comedian singer songwriter actor and filmmaker steve markle steve is an artist who has never sat back and waited for the phone to ring he's always aggressively marketed his solo efforts which have been huge successes in their own right but have often put him on the radar of other creatives who have cast him to star in some pretty cool projects as well We chatted about Steve's early days making films with childhood pals, his character Slim Mackerel, the time his brother dared him in 1997 to run for mayor of Toronto, his fantastic film Camp Hollywood, working in television with Ashton Kutcher and Kenny Hotz of Kenny vs. Spenny fame, and his brand new film Shoot to Marry. So stay tuned for that. I really enjoyed my chat with Steve, and I'm certain you will as well. Ordinarily, every episode of my show features a little something we like to call Please don't try this at home However, this week we will not be featuring an installment of Please don't try this at home Instead, I'm putting an appeal to you, my listeners, to send in a crazy or weird story of your own to be included in an upcoming episode. That may sound daunting, but it's actually pretty straightforward. All I need you to do is send me a story, it can be recorded on your smartphone, that is approximately two minutes in length. Just make sure you begin it with the greeting, Hi, my name is blah blah blah, and this is my story. And wrap it up at the end with, Hi, my name is blah blah blah, and that was my story. Then I take your story that sounds like this. As I was listening intently to the story Baz was telling, I inadvertently sucked the chunks of sauce off my knuckles. As I swallowed, I realized that the sauce on my knuckles was greenish-brown, not white with chunks of peas and potatoes in it. And turn it into something that sounds like this. As I was listening intently to the story Baz was telling, I inadvertently sucked the chunks of sauce off my knuckles. As I swallowed, I realized that the sauce on my knuckles was greenish brown, not white, with chunks of peas and potatoes in it. Pretty straightforward, really. So if you'd like to possibly have your story included in an upcoming episode, record something funny, concise, and engaging, an email to my email address, info at davidjmacneil.com with the subject line, Please don't try this at home. Now that we have that out of the way, it's time for my chat with the very funny Mr. Stephen Markle. All right, well... Uh, why don't we just uh, I'll uh, uh, do a five four three two one and uh, we'll we'll jump in and I'll say hello and we'll we'll take. It I from would there. feel more comfortable if you started at seven. Okay, that's perfect. Yeah, I'll start it just at seven. gives me two more seconds to really <laughs> psych myself into it. Okay, cool. You'll hear the difference. Okay, all right. Well, let's do it then. Seven, six, five, four. Hello, Stephen. How are you? Oh, hello, David. You sound well. How are you? You sound well, too. Thank you. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I, uh, uh, how are you doing? You hanging in there during this shutdown, the lockdown? Yeah, I was definitely uh, gripped by uh, 
anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know, I got sort of swept up in the hysteria of the whole thing. The first month right. or so, the, the, the media was, uh, it was terrifying, all of the headlines, all of these wild predictions of, you know, the world is never going to be the same and we're all going to, sure. we're all going to die. And it was <laughs> yeah. frightening. And, uh, but now I think like everybody, we see that uh, it's perhaps not as, it's not as deadly as we imagined it could have been. Right. Certainly a lot of people are going to die this year, maybe, I don't know, a million or so. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly old people, which is unfortunate, but, um, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's like, it's, it's not, um, it's not the scary monster that, you know, the media, sure. I think made it out to be. And I'm guessing, I mean, you've mentioned before, you consider yourself a homebody. This is probably so maybe, you know, staying at home and, and, uh, you know, working on your projects and that sort of thing, probably not the end of the world for you. That's true. It's funny. I was listening to someone a few weeks ago on the news there going on about how you, you can't cage us into our homes. We need to, we need to socialize. We need to get out. This is, mm-hmm. this is absolute hell. I think this guy's describing my life. <laughs> I, I don't leave the house. Maybe I should. But yeah. I, 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 you're right. I am a, I am a homebody and I kind of lock myself into creative projects and probably don't always um, get out and socialize as much as I should. Right. Well, that's what, that's uh, how this podcast was born. Uh, you know, I have projects that I was working on. I've got stuff going on, but we've got so much time now that I thought, uh, you know, this is, you've been thinking about this for a little while. So this is a great opportunity to launch this and, and, uh, you know, to really jump in there. And, uh, it's been good because also I think, uh, as the saying goes, idle, uh, what is it? Uh, the devil will find work for idle hands to do. If you got too much time, that can be dangerous. So I think this is a, a nice way to, uh, fill some time and, uh, and uh, chat with some interesting people and uh, learn a new skill, right? And you couldn't find the interesting people, so here I am. There you go. I, I know you. I've known you for a bunch of years. I'm good friends with your brother, so mm-hmm. we've kind of we've come in and out of our lives quite mm-hmm. often. See you at events and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I know that you and your brother became interested in in show business quite early. What was it? Do you remember what, when your first memory is of, of thinking that this might be something I could do? Well, my brother and I, from the earliest age, maybe, you know, six, seven, eight, we were putting on skits. I suppose that most kids do that. But we took comedy, I think, more seriously than the average kid. Mm -hmm. We were obsessed, both of us, with SCTV. Yeah, sure. In fact, one of my greatest childhood memories, and I don't know if Martin ever told you this story, but our dad, for his career was in the sign business. Right. Neon, he had, neon, signs, neon signs and all different types of signs. And mm-hmm. he was approached by a guy named Andrew Alexander, who was the executive producer of the second city in Toronto yeah. and also of the TV series, SCTV. Mm-hmm. And he decided he wanted to open a diner called the SCTV diner. And it was going to oh, really? be, yeah, in Toronto, going to be your, your average diner, except that there'd be pictures on the wall framed black and white, eight and a half by 11s of old photos of the cast of SCTV and Second City pics and stuff. Uh And he hired my dad to make the sign and paid half up front. And when it came time, the sign was up to pay the second half, didn't pay. And weeks were going by and months were going by. And Andrew Alexander was not paying 
my father for the sign. And eventually right. they were on the phone. And my dad said, look, this is back when they were still f- filming SCTV. Mm-hmm. My dad said, my kids are huge fans of mm-hmm. SCTV. Is there any way we'll f- I'll forgive the second half of the payment for the sign? Is there any way we can come to the studio and watch you guys tape? And Andrew Alexander said, you got a deal. And we went as a family, me and my brother, my parents, to the studio, and we spent the day. I met Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis. They they were dressed up as Bob and Doug McKenzie. They signed, both of them signed my Bob and Doug McKenzie album, which was a thrill. Yeah. Um, I would later uh, in life work with Dave Thomas. In fact, I just emailed with them a few days ago to wish him a happy birthday. But as a kid, to meet... Bob and Doug McKenzie was absolutely thrilling. I met Catherine O'Hara, and um, we have a picture of Martin and I, Guy Caballero's wheelchair, uh, <laughs> and also a picture of Martin and I on the, on the Great White North set with the, all the beer bottles around. I mean, it was a thrilling yeah. and And it was a Christmas special, and Tony Bennett was the guest. He was singing, right. I Left My Heart in San Francisco. And my mom, who didn't know anything about SCTV, she was just thrilled to get to meet Tony Bennett. So for the whole family, yeah, no it was a thrilling day. That's amazing. I'm, I'm surprised your brother never told me that story. Yeah. We, have, <laughs> we have photos, I mean, of us with the cast. It was just amazing. Yeah. And Martin and I actually studied at Second City together, which is ah. funny. Uh, yeah. But that was, SCTV uh, was very much an entry into uh, comedy. Uh, and then, yeah. you know, my brother got me into Steve Martin movies, The Jerk, and uh, and, and, and my dad got us both into Mel Brooks films and Woody Allen's early sure. stuff. And um, so from a very young age, my brother and I were we were doing skits, um, you know. Jeff Castle, who, you know, he and I yeah. went to elementary school together. Uh, we would many years later star in testes together, but we've known yeah. each other our whole lives. And we put a a sketch group together in in second or third grade. We went to a school called mm-hmm. Pineway. So we we put together a, a sketch group that we called the Pineway Public School Show. And we would mm-hmm. put skits on for our class. And the teacher loved it so much, Mrs. Beaumont, she'd say, you know what? Go class to class doing your act. Right. And we would get out of class going, we'd spend the day going classroom to classroom, putting on our show. And and it just kept going. And, and when I was about 10, uh, Martin got me into animation. Both of us were making little claymations, you know, mm-hmm. filming one frame at a time, bringing little clay figures to life. And in high school, I saved up my money from part-time jobs. I worked at Boodle's Submarine Sandwiches in the food court of Thornhill Square and mm-hmm. saved up my money to buy a video camera when camcorders right. were kind of a new thing. Sure. And I spent my high school years making stupid videos with yeah. my friends. And yeah. I mean, looking back, it was just so geeky. We didn't think of it as that at the time. We just, we were having a blast making our videos and for who we were making them, I don't know, for our, just for ourselves. This is, you know, many years before YouTube. So it wasn't like we had a platform to show our silly videos to anybody. Um, but, you know, while, while the normal teens spent their high school years 
uh, drinking and going to parties and maybe trying to get laid. We were every weekend. We were at, at my, my childhood home. It was sort of our studio in Thornhill. Right. You know, we'd be in the basement. You were in production. We were in production and making our silly comedy videos for our own amusement. That's amazing. That's that's that sounds like what I was doing at, at about the same age. You mentioned having a teacher who who encouraged that when I was in grade 10. I had a buddy of mine who would come back. His parents had been posted overseas and they had mm-hmm. spent a bunch of time in Hong Kong and they came back with a couple of uh, uh VHS recorders and VHS machines, and we convinced our teacher, rather than 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 writing papers, to do films or to do you know videos. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, of course, uh, our grades end up going up because we much more enjoy doing that than writing right. papers. And then everybody in class got to watch movies instead of listening to the teacher. So it was just win win, and that opened up the door to uh, what I do today. So I, I always That's love hearing so stories funny. about teachers who do that. Yes, you know? encouraging teachers. And it's so funny that we had that shared experience because I, I learned very early on that I could use these videos to get out of doing the actual assignments. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever it was, if there was a book report or an essay, I, I'd say, well, you know, instead, can I show my understanding of the book in a video? And they thought that yeah. was delightful. Oh, yeah. Probably more fun for them, too, to have one less book report to read. They could sit and watch right. it. But of course, I never would read the book. I'd read the back cover yeah. and then just come up with some nonsense video that always went over blank. extremely well. Yeah. And the thing about it, too, is I think when we started doing that, we thought, well, this will be easy and fun. But it, of course, it takes a long time, even even if you're making a 10th grade film. It takes much longer to make a film than, than write a paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? but yeah. But we were having fun doing it. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I used to edit those early videos in high school. We had two VHS players. And this is how I used to edit. I would, I would have the, I would, I would play one VHS tape in one machine, yeah. recording it onto the other, and then, you know, pa- pause the record just where yeah. I wanted it. And then cue yeah. up the next shot and then, and then hit pause again to continue recording and string bit by bit together that way. And of course the edits were, they weren't clean edits. You get these kind of VHS yeah. rainbowy lines. Yeah. You that's know? exactly what we did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if I, you know, sometimes I think, boy, like if, if we had back in high school or junior high editing software, mm-hmm. we would have, we would have been all over our YouTube, a place to show our videos. We right. would have thrived, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I, but uh, yeah, I, I, I'm so lucky that we did have that opportunity and just to have those cameras. I mean, that was a, a game changer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, those uh, those uh, VHS cameras uh, mm-hmm. to be able to do that work early on. And I still have friends every once in a while that I, you know, on Facebook, people say, "Oh, I remember that film that you did in grade ten, and mm-hmm. I remember this one and that one." Of course, we did. It was. You know, we were just uh, on fire uh, uh, creatively and, mm-hmm. and so excited to be working on these projects. So yes. that's cool. That's really I, neat. Yeah. I often think, too, and I try to recapture the spirit, but it's difficult later in life. But we had a spirit when we were making these videos where we, we didn't second guess ourselves. We didn't overthink anything. It was just you get an idea and boom, you're filming it. You yeah, know? exactly. We would use my dad's... Uh, closet often as our wardrobe closet because my dad had all kinds of funny outfits from the 70s and so, so mm-hmm. yeah and we and we over the years we collected wigs and odd props and things so 
there was just a great joy in not overthinking an idea, you know. And then when you start doing it professionally, um, you get in your own way because you start, you do start second guessing every creative choice, and you lose mm-hmm. some of that free spirited sensibility. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's an element of that. I was going to, you know, one of the things about you, too, is often if I was going to be interviewing somebody like yourself and a storyteller, I'd ask, you know, if they knew where that comes from. I, I, for pretty good idea where that comes from, because I've met your parents. First of all, both of your parents are funny people. And your dad in particular is a really great storyteller. Mm -hmm. You know, every opportunity I've been to, he he likes to get up and tell a yarn. He does. Yeah. He's a joke teller. (laughs) That yeah, is his sure. identity. He identifies as joke teller. Uh, and, and people come to expect it from him, and he delivers. Yeah. No, he's a lot of fun to be around. I remember w- w- at my uh, grandfather, my mom's father, when he passed away, and we were, going, we were driving to the funeral. Mm-hmm. And we arrived at the funeral home, and there was a... Uh, uh, either an officer or a security person who was there kind of directing traffic. I think it was a cop. And my dad rolled down the window. This guy was going to direct us where to park the funeral. And my dad just instinctively starts telling jokes to the cop. My yeah. mom is in the passenger seat, you know, completely emotional because her father two days earlier has passed away. Sure. And my dad, he can't control himself in any situation. <laughs> doesn't matter if his wife's dad has just died. He's got the joke. Yeah. 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 No, for sure. That's, that's who he is exactly. Yeah. Well, I remember once running into you uh, quite a few years ago, and you, you had just bought a condo downtown. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were, I don't know, I think you were moving in that day. And I, I laughed so hard because your mom got out of the car, and she was wearing a full-on bright orange a uh, 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 prison uh, jumpsuit. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's it. I brought that. Yeah. I brought that back from LA. Yeah, I, I just I think maybe six months earlier moved back from a couple of years living in LA. So I got the whole family those bright orange shirts that said LA County Jail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 She's standing out. <laughs> we have a photo of all like the extended family and all of us. With the shirts, it's hysterical. Yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of moms would be putting on yeah. a California corrections outfit. That's right. Pretty funny. Um, so uh, what? So you're, you're you're working on all these projects. You're 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 creating with your friends, and you've got a, a, a large group of friends that are particularly creative. You know, I've met a lot of them yeah. over the years, whether they're musicians or whether they're TV people or whether they're whatever artists, uh, you know, fine artists or whatever. Uh, uh, you've got a lot of friends that are creative people, so that's a pretty pretty cool um, group to be in the midst of as you're you're growing creatively yourself. Yes. Um, What was the first project you worked on that you kind of, you kind of said to yourself, well, this is uh, this can be, this, this could be a career like this is, this could be, I can sustain myself possibly doing this. Um, You know, I don't know that if it, if it was one project or one moment or it, it, it was just something that I had been doing literally my whole life. It went from the, the skits, for my mm-hmm. class to videos for my class in high school. And it became just obvious early on in, in, in high school that I was going to go to film school and pursue mm-hmm. a career at this. And 
And once I became certain of that, by the way, it also occurred to me because grades were not the most important thing to get into film school. It was more about your portfolio, <clears throat> your, your reel, your demo reel. So I was able to sort of start skipping class more and my grades fell a little bit. And uh, I just, I didn't think that grades were going to matter in my mm-hmm. professional path. Mm-hmm. And did you go to, did you study at York? I, Martin did. I went to Ryerson Film School. Oh, did you? Okay, right. Okay, yeah. and uh, and so once you graduated, what uh, professionally? What were the what were the first kind of projects you worked on? The first job I had after film school was producing movie trailers for the movie network, the Pay TV oh, right. channel. Yes. And I did yeah. that for about two years. Uh, Martin also worked there. Um, we've done a lot together, which is awesome. But right. that job was the best. Watching. Mm-hmm. I was paid to watch movies and, you know, you pull out the interesting bits and you do something mm-hmm. creative with it and you put a, put a two, three minute trailer together. Loved it. Sure. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. I've been doing it for uh, 15 years now. Yeah. <laughs> same well, same I, yeah. sort of work. Well, Cause then from the, the movie trailer work sort of segued a little bit later into doing, uh, producing TV promos Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I love that ju- uh, just as well, watching TV shows and finding creative right. ways to put, you know, 20, 30 second promos together. It was a gr- great way to make a living. Yeah. And the fun thing about doing that as well is that you're, you're starting out and uh, you're editing and you're coming up with creative uh, concepts for uh, advertising these projects. And you get to use Hollywood footage like you get to use you right. know, the best of the best stuff. Right. It's so true. The best material and you get to re-edit it. To your taste, yeah. you get to re-edit a thirty-second version of it. Right. Yeah, you get to take Steven Spielberg's work right. and make it your own. Exactly. <laughs> you, you compress a ninety-minute Spielberg movie down to thirty seconds. Very enjoyable, and and also kind of you know without the pressure of production of being on a set and doing twelve, fourteen-hour days. It's yeah. uh, very it's very easy work. You know, you go go into a space or work from home and do a, an eight hour day or less mm-hmm. and, 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 and have the freedom to work on your own projects on the side, which I always did. Yeah. So you, you would, uh, had, you had a career going, you were uh, producing and directing and you were a busy guy. And then you decided that you were, well, you said you're working on stuff on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first got to know you, uh, fairly well, you were, uh, you had a project that was starting to get a lot of attention. That was, uh, you had a character called Slim Mackerel. How did that come about? Um, this, I started doing that character in high school and the idea of Slim Mackerel, why, you know, I play the piano. And so it, it was a chance for me to, you know how it came about? This is how it came about. I'm remembering. Mm. It's all coming back. I sat at my keyboard in high school. I tried to write some legit songs. Right. And the melodies came easily to me. I was good mm. with coming up with catchy, almost Broadway-esque big melodies. But mm-hmm. lyrically, I was always stuck. I, I, I felt maybe embarrassed writing what I thought were serious lyrics. They just always came off to me as cheesy or trying too right. hard. Um, right. I just didn't have a knack for lyrics. So instead, mm-hmm. I thought, well, I'm going to write funny lyrics. Mm-hmm. I'll just make, write joke songs. And that, uh, you know, I love doing that. Comedy I felt comfortable with. So I wrote sure. funny songs. And Slim Mackerel was a character... 
I would sing these these goofball songs as Slim Mackerel, who was this '70s washed-up rock star, or at least a mm-hmm. rock star in his own mind, sort of a delusional rock star. Who would, you know, the idea was that he he had disappeared for twenty or thirty years since the '70s, and he was back. Right. He'd come back, and so yeah. I would sing these stupid songs as Slim Mackerel. The, I mean, the songs yeah. had names like you know. Uh, you know, give me a hand job. I mean, just very juvenile <laughs> high school humor. Right. Uh, but, but, but with catchy melodies. Yeah. Like if you yeah. weren't listening to the lyrics, you'd think you were at a Broadway show. Yeah. Well, and, and the music was great. It was great music, you know, that you were producing as well for, for the character. And, and that could have been like, that's the kind of character that's, that could have been a, a second city, you know, an SCTV character kind of comes from the same sort of sensibility, right? Yes. I can, the, you know, so, uh, I, when I heard that and I started seeing those bits, I was like, okay, I get this, you know, this is, yeah. this is in my wheelhouse. Yes. Uh, and then the, the, the really cool thing about that too, was that was a lot of fun is the way you threw yourself into it and you started showing up at like MTV, the MTV video awards and, and just kind of barging onto the scene and, and, uh, you know, uh, sticking your mic in, in, uh, in the face of whoever you could get and, and, and getting all these little bits that were later on the internet kind of before YouTube, right? Too. That's right. Oh, and that was with getting on the red carpet. And so that was with the help of a radio station that I became a regular on or Slim Mackerel became a regular on a right. station yeah. in Atlanta uh, 96 Rock with the regular guys, great guys, mm-hmm. Tim and Eric. And um, th- th- how did I get? Okay, this is what happened. When I was trying to push Slim Mackerel, I wrote emails. I, I don't know. I think I got a, I maybe paid for a book that was like, uh, it had all these industry contacts. It was mm-hmm. a directory. You pay twenty dollars, you get this directory of you know radio producers and radio oh, right, DJs right. and stuff. And I went. Was through it all- Focus? Yeah, it, w- it is Focus. exactly right. It was. Yeah, that's focused. right. I remember that book. Yeah. Exactly right. It was focused. Yeah. And I went through that book and I emailed. Basically, I must have emailed every radio station across the U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. But I emailed not as myself. I emailed as if I was a fan of Slim Mackerel saying, mm-hmm. by the way, you guys <laughs> got to check out this Slim Mackerel, like have him on your, he'd be perfect for your show. Yeah. And right. sure enough, I got some responses. There was a radio station in Florida and uh, one in New Orleans, but it was this station in Atlanta. They had me on and they loved Slim Mackerel. It was just a good fit for their listeners. They had a sure. listenership of about 30,000 people. They were Atlanta's biggest morning show. Yeah, morning drive time. Yeah, exactly. And they had me on the next week again and the next week after that. And for it must have been at least two years, maybe more. Yeah. I was a regular. I would do these phoner interviews and sing songs over the phone. And then they they started, like you said, they started sending me out on these assignments. Mm -hmm. And they sent me to the MTV Video Music Awards. The um, there was uh, the Radio Music Awards in Vegas, right? Uh, a bunch of different things. They sent me to the Playboy Mansion. Yeah, they sent Slim Mackerel to the Playboy. There was this one. There was a contest that I think it was Universal Studios, maybe DreamWorks, one of the big studios, was having a contest to promote a not very good film. You could go and interview Michelle Pfeiffer, and mm-hmm. she was the star of the movie. And mm-hmm. they submitted Slim Mackerel to this called the radio station. Submitted Slim Mackerel as 
their listener that had apparently won the contest. They made, and they sent Slim Mackerel to interview Michelle Pfeiffer at this. Right. They were promoting her movie, which I can't remember the name of. Mm -hmm. And so I show up as Slim Mackerel and I'm in the gear and stuff. My Slim would wear these wild 70s outfits, kind of Elton yeah. John inspired outfits. Sure. Yeah. And they said to me, okay, Michelle Pfeiffer, she's actually, she's completely booked for interviews, but um, we're going to have you interview instead the other star of the movie, Harrison Ford. Oh, I, thought, oh I remember God, this now. You've yeah. You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I'm about to interview Harrison Ford. Like, Michelle Pfeiffer was, you know, mildly exciting interesting yeah harrison ford yeah no kidding come on indiana jones indiana jones and so in the room oh my god so and so now i'm in a i'm walked into a room and there's harrison ford and my heart is racing and i'm in my character and i'm speaking as slim macro speaks in this loud strange voice in an accent that's kind of doesn't quite we don't know where the accent comes from just talks in a strange way and (laughs) I, you know, listen, I, I'd have, I, I should have started with some softball questions before I got into the, uh, yeah. the jokey questions, but I don't know if it was nerves or what. And I just went right in. My opening question was something about, uh, the, you know, a story of, does he remember the time he, back in the seventies that he and I were smoking hoobie doobie together at Lionel Richie's <laughs> place? Like just some nonsense story that I'm making up. And within, yeah. I got halfway through my nonsense question and the publicist says, eh, and that's the end of the interview. Yeah. I didn't get one word <laughs> out of Harrison Ford, and I was walked out. I mean, I just oh, got, yeah, I completely yeah. botched it. You must have been scared shitless when you walked in the door, because he's got a reputation for being pretty crusty with interviews. He doesn't suffer fools. No, that's true. I mean, yeah. I, I was, I, and I had prepared, you know, thinking of Michelle Pfeiffer, like, okay, I'm going to sit down with Michelle Pfeiffer. I had wrapped my head around that interview. Yeah. And suddenly I'm face to face with Harrison Ford in this hotel room. It was it was amazing. But right. But you did a lot of stuff on the on the on the red carpet where, where a lot of stars played along. But it was it it always felt it always looked like they were being ambushed. But, you know, they're live on the carpet and there's so many cameras that they kind of figure, well, in their performers, I should just go for it. You know, I'm not going to look like an idiot and shut this guy down or whatever. I think most most people I saw, you had a few people to kind of push back. But usually people would just kind of go with it. Right. Most people went with it. Yes, uh, Sting yeah. was a great sport, and uh, I, one person I remember not being a good sport was Bono. He, mm-hmm. I, I had him; he was right there in front of me, and I, you know, I called him in again in, in character, and I called him Bono, right? Which a lot of people actually did call him Bono before everyone realized, you know, he, he likes yeah. to speak it's Bono. But he didn't like I, that. He didn't like that I was calling him Bono. And mm-hmm. so he completely ignored my question and just kept moving. Yeah. Uh, but yes, most people were terrific sports. And, and I wasn't out to embarrass anybody or ask questions that would make them look bad. My questions were silly and yeah. nonsensical, but they were all in good spirit. And uh, so, yeah, most of the... Famous people I got to meet did play along. Yeah. Beyonce. I met right. a lot of interesting people. Yeah. It was one of those characters, too, that that you had to, you know, not ask permission. You you, you know what's the expression? Not ask permission, but you beg forgiveness later or something. You just had to jump into it. And if it didn't exactly. work, it didn't work. But 
I remember one that pops out in my head where you got a, a response. It was a, a bit of a shutdown, but it was, a, it, you know, pretty funny. When was it you asked Kid Rock? I, I just I remember you asking him something, basically saying, oh, maybe we could get together and play or do a duet or something like that. And right. his response was just, fuck, no. Yes, <laughs> a good memory. That's exactly right. I said, fuck, yeah. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun, right? You, you got, I mean, you got a lot of, a lot of mileage out of that, a lot it of kilometers great. out of that. It was great. And they would also fly me many times to Atlanta if they were doing, if, this, if the morning show was doing some special event they would you know, sometimes they they would record their show live at a bar or outside a stadium or something, and they would uh, always invite me to those special events. and And I had fans in Atlanta. People would sure. line up to have me. You yeah. know, I was autographing with the Sharpie women's breasts. Yeah, many times the women yeah. liked that, and uh, <laughs> this was not something I was you know imposing on them. This was something they were asking for. I had, one time I got out of the airplane uh, in character, but as the plane landed in Atlanta, I went into the bathroom, put on my insane slim mackerel outfit. I was just curious, to, and I walked out into the airport. This is pre-9-11. I walked mm-hmm. out into the airport, and sure enough, I had Atlanta fans coming over. to. They were delighted to see slim mackerel at the airport. <laughs> That's fun, isn't it? Yeah. And you produced an album as Slim Mackerel, too. Yeah, a couple of albums. A couple of. Uh, and the radio station would play the songs. And, and uh, it, yeah, the whole, the whole experience was great. Met a lot of interesting people. And, uh, and it was very much, like you said, inspired by the characters that I saw. You know, my comedy heroes, Eugene Levy and Rick Moranis. And, sure. And Dave well, kind of remind Short. me a little bit of like a, a um, Martin Short's uh, Jackie Rogers Jr. Yeah, right. You know that kind of that kind of thing. It, it, exactly. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, because Jackie Rogers Jr. almost had a little bit of a Sammy Davis thing to him, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and then uh, the next big project for you that uh, that I recall, I'm sure you did all kinds of stuff in, in between, but. Is the next sort of big thing for you when, you know, putting together Camp Hollywood after Slim Mackerel? Uh, yeah. Um, Let me know uh, if I've glossed over no, anything. No. I mean, I think, I guess the, the once maybe significant thing that I, I spent a little bit of time on a few months was running for mayor of Toronto. Oh, yeah, that's right. And that that's was, right. Uh, you know, just something I did on a lark. Uh, actually, that was Martin's idea. We were right. We were having lunch together at the Senator and Martin had just read uh, an article that said, you know, to to run for mayor of Toronto, all you need is $20, no, no experience, no Mm -hmm. signatures, nothing, just Mm -hmm. 20, you have $20, you can run for mayor of Toronto. And I thought that cannot be true. Right. And he says, and I said, (laughs) my brother has always been into politics and local politics to Martin. That's true. Go run. You'd be a great mayor. And he said it would be funnier if I ran because I don't know anything about politics. (laughs) So I said, all right. And after lunch, yeah, after lunch, I walked from the Senator over to city hall and I had my $20 bill and I walked to the counter and I said, I would like to run for mayor. And 
guy pulled out a single piece of paper that I that mm-hmm. had four or five questions on it: name, phone number, email, address. Right. And I'm thinking this can't be. And I fill it up. It's just twenty dollars, and I hand it to him, and he stamps it, stamps mm-hmm. the piece of paper. Says, "Okay, you're running for mayor." And I right. said, "What?" Now, yeah. and, and I and I kept thinking, "What? Well, how is everyone not running for mayor just for the fun of seeing your name on the ballot?" But it, sure. was, it was only about uh, twenty-two of us, I think. Mm-hmm. There were the two actual candidates, Mel Lastman and Barbara Hall. Right. Was Mel and the mayor at that point, or Mel he was, was he? Mel was already the mayor. I right. believe, and um, was sort of the popular person to win. And um, and then there were sort of 20 nutcases, of which I was one. And right. of all the nutcases, I came in first. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> How many yeah. votes did you get? Over 2,000 votes. Right. Yeah, I got that's a lot amazing. of press. Yeah. We used to meet, yeah. Martin was my campaign manager. And yeah. uh, there were about five or six of us. We used to meet once a week, every Sunday. Uh, we would meet on College Street. I, I don't think the restaurant's there anymore. There was a place that was Bathurst and College, uh, sort of a, a shitty diner. And uh, we would bat around platform ideas, like, you know, funny, just jokes that I could, because people would always, media, would radio stations, that they call me and say, well, Tell us about your platform. So I'd always throw just throw goof, goofy lines at them. So I'm going to build a. It wasn't that funny. Things like right. you know I'm going to hire magical elves to handle road construction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, new, new <laughs> city hall in the middle of Lake Ontario with the with the slide going into the just dumb dumbass stuff. But the media liked it, and I got a mm. lot of press, and that was a fun thing that I did. Yeah, and uh, you know some of those. Uh, yeah, some of those campaigns, especially in those days, were you know they can get a little bit dull. So it's fun to have a, <laughs> it's fun to have a, a court jester running. It's true, <laughs> running along. That's true. I broke up the monotony of those debates. I sat beside yeah. Mel last minute. There was a big debate at St. Lawrence Theater, and they and we there was a random draw to determine who was going to sit where. And just by luck, I got to sit right beside the right. main candidate, Mel Lastman, and made a lot of jokes at his expense. But then, then the didn't I lost the election by about a million votes mm-hmm. and moved to Hollywood. Right. What was the impetus to go down to Hollywood in the first place? You, you were going to go down and see if, for pilot season yourself and see if you could land some some roles or no, a role. I never I never pursued acting. Uh, mm-hmm. I never thought I was strong enough as an actor, but I did want to pursue comedy. I always wanted to try stand up. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and also I wanted to push the mackerel and see how far sure. I could take that. And so I was 30. A lot of it was just turning 30 and feeling like, you know, I'd been working for about 10 years at that point, producing trailers and promos and a lot. I thought, you know, it, I got to push myself and stick to the dream. You know, I got to, yeah. uh, and so, um, I drove across America, which was also something I always wanted to do to do a big cross country road road trip. Right. And didn't uh, you have a big beater of a car? A, yeah. A giant car. Your memory is unbelievable. <laughs> yes, I, I was a big white Lincoln Town car. It yeah. was a, it was a huge boat. Great on gas. <laughs> yeah, right. 
every 10 <laughs> minutes I had to pull over to get gas. And yeah. the, the license, I had a mackerel, right. personalized yeah, mackerel yeah. license plate. Yeah. And I think that car cost me $200. It was like on its last legs, but I did manage to get it to LA and then it like immediately broke down. Right. And, uh, and moved in to the Highland Gardens Hotel, mm-hmm. which is this two story apartment complex on Franklin Avenue between Highland and La Brea. Mm-hmm. Right in right in the center of Hollywood, just about two minutes from Man's Chinese Theater and the Walk of Fame and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so right by that touristy stretch of Hollywood Boulevard, but tucked away just north mm-hmm. of that, just, uh, just two blocks north of that. So um, really only people in who lived in L.A. would ever drive by the Highland Gardens Hotel, maybe on their way to the to the 101 or something. Right. Um, but at the and time, it had a, a real, it had a real lore to it. I mean, the, uh, what Janis Joplin, Janis Joplin passed away in that that yeah, hotel. She did and, in in room one hundred and four. She passed away. Yeah, overdosed. And all, all kinds of all kinds of uh, of actors, including mm-hmm. the bunch of people that you follow, lived in that, including Brad Pitt, and I'm sure many many others. The the lobby was full of headshots. Yes, the lobby <laughs> was full of headshots. Hard to know uh, what was you know, who would actually stay there and, right. and what was just myth. Mm-hmm. But either way, it had it certainly had a legend vibe to, to the place mm-hmm. and a very interesting group of people living at this apartment complex. It was very eclectic mix of, uh, well, all different artists, types, actors mm-hmm. and musicians and directors and comedians, but also porn stars and strippers. And right. And older folks who had kind of retired into the apartment mm-hmm. complex. Yeah. So you had, you had young people who were kind of full of hope and mm-hmm. wanting to make it in Hollywood. And then people who were more at the end of their careers who had no hope left whatsoever. Right. Like one character in particular who was quite poignant to watch and had a, you know, an unfortunate story was the, the flautist. Was it, he was a flautist? Yeah, clarinetist. Her- clarinetist. Lovely Herald. guy. Yeah. Um, and, and, and he, he drank, he definitely had a, a drinking problem and he talked about mm-hmm. that. Um, but just such a, a warm guy and, um, yes, yeah, speaks very openly in the film about his mm-hmm. wife who had Alzheimer's. And, uh, well, he say, he says in the film, that he, he always, cause I asked him, why does he drink? Mm-hmm. And he says he always drank, but now, you know, now he has more reason to drink. It was the, he couldn't right. get over the, the couldn't deal with the pain of his wife having. She was still alive when we filmed together, but right. in his mind, she was just um, she was gone. Yeah, it was a really interesting mix of uh, of personalities. Uh, that, the thing about that film, and and I highly suggest to anybody who's listening that they should uh, go find it on Amazon Prime and, and give it a watch. It's such an honest film and uh, a really beautiful film because like you said there's the people the young people especially who are in that film are at a moment that you just you only have that shot once there's you can only Mm -hmm. be in that place once right uh where you know everything's about to happen or nothing's about to happen but something's you know and uh and so to watch all all these young people um you know getting you know Trying, getting their shit together for auditions and stuff and and uh being in in this in this place where possibly their lives could change mm-hmm. that day mm-hmm. is 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 an electric feeling 
Uh, and uh, something I've obviously related to because I was at the time I had an agent and I was auditioning for projects. I, I, I wasn't down in Los Angeles kind of really uh, taking a, that big of a, a stab at it. Because in those days, you, you, you really had to go down there. It wasn't like today where you could uh, self-tape from home and send mm-hmm. stuff in and possibly book a, an L.A. series. You, you had to go down there and you mm-hmm. had to spend a lot of money and probably borrow a lot of money from your mm-hmm. folks and to be able to do that. Oh, I came so, down. I didn't borrow any money from my folks, but I, I had a credit card. And I, I wasn't – I sort of went to L.A. spontaneously and I hadn't saved up any money. So for the day I arrived, I was just charging everything to my visa card Mm -hmm. and I was tens of thousands of dollars in debt. I was over 80, $82,000 in debt by the time I came back to Toronto. But you came back, you were, you know, broke, but you had a film. Right. And, uh, and, and also, uh, I was doing standup, which is why I wanted, it was the main reason I wanted to go. I wanted to try, uh, I wanted to push Slamacral. So the, the day I mm-hmm. got there, I started working on putting the band together. I had a killer five-piece band, including a sax yeah. player. You know, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I grew up listening to Springsteen. And, and mm-hmm. so having a sax player in the band was like a must for me. So right. killer band, they were all much better players than I was. And uh, we would, we would rehearse and we started off in like little, you know, playing to one or two people and, uh, open mics and coffee shops and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And pretty quickly, we worked our way up. We became regulars doing our act at uh, at uh, the Knitting Factory, which is a, a club. I don't know that it's still there in L.A. There's one in New York, right. too. But a club mm-hmm. called Knitting Factory on Hollywood Boulevard and uh, and the Hollywood Improv on nice. Melrose. Yeah. And which is a you know legendary place, and and, yeah. and also a bunch of other places along the Sunset Strip, and mm-hmm. we 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 did get noticed. Um, uh, Booker for Jimmy Kimmel actually, I remember, uh, approached me, saw our act, and said he wants me to put the act on tape because he, he'd consider having us on Jimmy Kimmel's show, which didn't end up happening. He showed the video to Jimmy Kimmel, and Jimmy mm-hmm. passed on it. But um, but we had a blast doing the act, and it got me. Uh, an agent, an agent from William Morris mm-hmm. came out to see it and, and signed me and then sent me out on a couple, even though I wasn't really there to pursue acting, he did send me out on some auditions. and Yeah. And you got to meet some people. I remember you met Jay Leno, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. I yeah. got to meet Jay Leno and, uh, and I, I did get cast in a, a show on MTV that was not very good and got canceled after a few episodes. But uh, I went to audition for Ashton Kutcher. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was actually going to audition for for punk. They were seeing right. new comic actors to be in punk. Yeah. But as I was auditioning, the auditions were kind of improved. Um, I could see that Ashton Kutcher was kind of leaning over to his producing partner, and they were pointing at me and whispering. And I could tell I was doing well because they kept mm-hmm. bringing in new people into the room, but mm-hmm. keeping me there. Yeah. And like whoever my my improv partner was, would be, they'd say thank you to that person. They'd be gone. They'd bring in the new person. But I was there for a good 30 minutes improving with different people. And eventually mm-hmm. uh, turns out that they decided I would be great, not for punk, but for this new show that they were doing. They wanted me to star in a new show that they brought to MTV called my new best friend. Right. Okay. And it was a, re- it was a kid and camera reality 
show uh, in which a contestant, there was a game show component, a contestant would win 15 grand if they could Mm -hmm. put up with their new best friend for a weekend. Mm -hmm. Best friend in quotes. I was this obnoxious, every episode I was a different uh, character, always obnoxious in some way. Right. And I would put the contestant through a hell with my obnoxiousness and none of their friends, it was all hidden cameras. The contestant understood what was going on, but none of their friends knew that I was an actor and that they were on camera. So the right. contestant would have to introduce me as their friend. Like, oh, you know, this we're, we're old friends and we just reconnected and that were like, they bring me into their friend group and their families. Yeah. And inevitably the friends and families would like, I would leave, I make a scene, go to the bathroom or whatever, leave for a minute. And the cameras would capture all this, that friends would inevitably be like, who, who is this yeah. asshole? Who, who did you bring home? Friends with him? Like this yeah. guy's a dick. And <laughs> the game was that the contestant would have to defend me and say, mm-hmm. oh, like he's a really good guy. You got to get to know him. And as yeah. long as they defended me, they were still in the game and could win yeah. the 15 grand if they made it to the end of the 48 hours. Right. And so how many episodes of that one did you do? Two or three. And then that was pulled. Uh, it, to be honest, it, it was a mean spirited show. And I was actually ashamed of a lot of the stuff that they had me doing. Right. Uh, I had Ashton Kutcher in my ear. Um, and sometimes Demi Moore, too, was in my ear. She was mm-hmm. not officially part of the show, but she was... Sure. You know, with Ashton, and so she was there on set and mm-hmm. got got involved, and um, so you know, I was improving, but sometimes they would feed me suggestions in my mm-hmm. piece. Right. Yeah. And yeah. some of them were nasty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but well, there were a lot um, of that was that was kind of the trend at the time, right? Kind of a yeah. lot of gotcha shows and and yes. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was Ashton's thing. I mean, and. I, yeah. You know, he and I would chat the whole weekend. He said, well, how do you think it's going? I said, listen, I got to be honest. I think it would be f- funnier, more entertaining if I was obnoxious in a fun loving way. Right. You know, like I'm thinking like John Candy in Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Sure. Or John sure. Belushi. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, fun loving obnoxious. Yeah. But Ashton's vision was no, 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 no. We're get, this is going to be hardcore and you are going to make these people cry. Right. They wanted yeah. me to destroy these people, which is not in my nature. I'm, I, no. I, I like to be nice. I, yeah. You know what I mean? I don't like to be mean to people. And so it was difficult, but I, this was the job I got myself into and uh, I did it. Right. And well, if you'd played it that way too, if you'd played it sort of the John Candy route, the soft route, it's harder mm-hmm. for those people to push you out too, because- it's like this guy is weird, and what, what right. you know, why'd you bring this guy home? But also, you know, it'd be harder to push you away. Well, that's but true. It, perhaps it wouldn't tough. fit into their concept as as much. But I, I did struggle uh, with how just how um, brutally mean they they expected me to be to these these people. But I, anyways, it took me a while to kind of shake those characters, like. After, you know, I, I was delighted yeah. when my agent called it told me the show's been canceled. I was thrilled out of my mind <laughs> that I didn't have to put people through that hell anymore. Myself yeah. through the hell. 
But a great experience and a yeah. great opportunity to yeah. work with some some big wigs and to mm. see how it's done and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that's pretty and cool. By the way, you know, you wonder how a guy can come back from LA eighty two thousand dollars in debt. The contestants on that show, they won fifteen grand to put right. up with me. My pay to to be the star of the show mm. for forty eight hours an episode, mm. two thousand dollars. <laughs> that's what they paid me, two thousand dollars. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Even your dog is uh, blown away by even that. upset by that. Yeah, he was up like, in arms. Idiot. Who, who was your agent? This is a William, William Morris agent. Morris. That's, the, that's his, the best he could negotiate, $2,000. Yeah. yeah. You know, people, maybe uh, people maybe think, it wasn't William Morris. Maybe it was William Morrison you were signed with. Me. <laughs> that must have been. Yeah, yeah. I remember as a, as a kid, you know, thinking that if you're, if you're on TV, if you were on, you know, if, even if you're a bit player on, on the Love Boat, on mm. WKRP, on MASH, on all the shows I used to watch, I just have, if you're on TV, you are rich. Yeah, you must have a Bentley. You made it. Yeah. <laughs> that is yeah. not the case. So, but while you're doing the Ashton Kutcher show and you're doing all the live gigs with the band, the Slim Mackerel shows, you're also still shooting Camp Hollywood back at the hotel. You know, that was sort of my secondary project when I wasn't mm-hmm. out performing in the clubs and stuff. Uh, I had my camera and it, and it was sort of like a video diary in a way. I was just mm-hmm. filming the goings on at the Highland Gardens Hotel and all the people I was meeting there. And that, that's what became the documentary Camp Hollywood. And the interesting thing about it too is while, first of all, it was surprising how many established actors live there. Mm-hmm. Uh, part time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what's his name? There's uh, Margulies. Mark, Mark Margolis. Margolis, sorry, Mark yeah. Margolis, who uh, you know was in uh, Scarface. Mm-hmm. Uh, he more, more recently he, uh, he he was in Breaking Bad. Saul Rubinek. Mm-hmm. Saul Rubinek. Yep. Saul Rubinek, mm-hmm. who uh, a very accomplished actor. There was, there was a lot Mark of season. Pardon me. Maury Chaikin has passed Maury away. Maury Chaikin, the late Maury Chaikin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was he was in the film as well. There was a, there was a Shakespearean actor who lived there with his Roy wife. Patrice. Yeah, he, Roy Patrice. Yeah, her, his wife passed away, and so he doesn't stay at the hotel anymore. But yes, he was a very distinguished uh, theater actor That's in right. the UK and would spend uh, winters at the Highland Gardens Hotel. Yeah. Such, such interesting people. And then on top of it, there's a few people uh, who uh, are in the, featured in the in the film that were that had just landed in L.A. that that became pretty big deal. The, the one that sticks out was uh, was it uh, Marlon Ackerman. Marlon Ackerman, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's not in the doc that much. I might have filmed more with her if I had known she was going to go on to be so successful. But she she's in a scene early on in the movie, briefly, where there's a party in one of the rooms at the hotel. And jokingly, she t- looks into the camera and she says, I'm going to be a star. Right. And of all the people that I met there, certainly of all the young people, she was the one who, she's not exactly an A-list star. She's not a household name, but she be- was very successful. Yeah. Yeah. She was the big breakout uh, mm-hmm. on that, on that, uh, on that mm-hmm. film. It is, it is very much a cautionary tale. There's a scene mm-hmm. in that film where you're talking to the guy, one of the, the, the guy who works the evenings at, at the hotel at front desk. Mm-hmm. And you asked him if he had any advice for young actors. What did he mm-hmm. say? Basically said to don't drink too much and don't oh, get yeah. the drugs. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because he, he had seen everybody right. come through and he, he could tell you what happens to, to, 
to a lot of the actors who came through, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen the movie in, in a, ten, at least 10 years, maybe more so. One of the other things that uh, that you worked on that really got a mm-hmm. lot of exposure because you, you were a co-star on that one and you were on the FX network was Testies. Tell me about that show. Well, Testies, that opportunity came out of uh, a web series that I created called Inside Steve's Mind. Yes. That was great. Great series. Thank you. And this was something that I, I directed and I put myself in as, as the star. And I, like I said before, I do not consider myself an actor. I Mm -hmm. have a, I have a thing that I can do. You Mm -hmm. know, I have a very narrow, a little bit of uh, my sweet spot with comedy Mm -hmm. acting. Yeah. No range, but I can do, I can do a couple of, anyway, uh, got a lot of traction, that web series. A lot of people saw it. And I yeah. got a message on YouTube. I didn't know that you could send people messages through YouTube. And I, it's even a miracle that I saw it because it's this just tiny little envelope icon. And I was almost even not going to click on it because I just figured it might be a, a welcome email from YouTube acknowledging mm-hmm. that I signed up for an account kind of thing. Sure. But I did click on the little M and there was a lot of messages from people who were had become fans of Inside Steve's Mind and wanted to tell me how much they were enjoying the digital series. But mm-hmm. one of the messages was from a guy named Kenny Hotz, who was a sure. TV creator and yeah. had a Kenny very versus Benny. Kenny versus Benny. Yeah. Yeah. And he said he saw my digital series and he loves it and he thinks that I would be terrific to star in a new series that he's putting together for FX in the States and, and showcase in Canada co-production. And can we talk on the phone? And he gave me a cell number. I called him and we hit it off on the phone. Mm -hmm. He's a pretty out there guy. (laughs) Yeah, he is out there. And, but we were, we had a great phone call and he said, listen, you got to come audition for the show. And I, I told him, I said, listen, I'm not a good actor. I can do, you know, a couple of different shticks. And he says, no, that's what he wants. He's what he mm-hmm. saw in the series. That's what he wants. I said, fine. And he said, and, and the show's about two best friends. If you have a friend who's an actor and you want to bring your friend to come audition with you, you can do that. Yeah. I said, yeah, I'll call no my kidding. friend Jeff. He's an actor. Yeah. So I called Jeff. I have this opportunity. You want to come to an audition with me? He, he had been already, actually, with someone else. Mm-hmm. But he says, I'll come again. I'll come audition again with me. So we went. We, uh, it was a, uh, an improvised audition. Kenny was and his partner, Derek Harvey, who was Tom yeah. Green's longtime partner. Yeah. They were throwing suggestions at us, and we were improvising. Mm-hmm. And they were laughing, and we knew it was going well. And uh, Kenny called me after the audition, said, come meet me for a beer and meet the director. And, and we both got hired. Yeah, it's crazy. That's the kind of thing that just doesn't happen. <laughs> no, for, for a show about two best friends to be played yeah. by two best friends, lifelong friends. I mean, we yeah. literally grew up together. Yeah. And uh, it was sort of insane. It is, and, yeah. Yeah. And it was yeah. only a, a one season show, but we, 
we do have hardcore fans. I still get messages all the time from Testy's fans saying, you know, why, why only one season? Yeah. But, um, and the, the concept of the show was you guys were two roommates. You were as two kind of slacker guys who are living in an apartment. They're uh, out of work. And then this opportunity comes comes along that they can be guinea pigs. And every episode yes. was you guys were guinea pigs for some new uh, drug that would have, of course, a, a horrible a horrible side effect. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And they weren't always drugs. Sometimes they were just crazy products or whatever. But we, right. yeah, always some we'd have some adverse reaction to whatever it was yeah. we were. We so there's definitely a, a gross out element often yeah. or, you know, just uncomfortable situations between the two of you, that sort of thing. Right. It was exactly. It was definitely like, you know, stoner college humor. Yeah. Very dumb, juvenile. It was fun, uh, though. It was fun. You yeah, know, listen, I liked it wasn't it. the best show, but it had its moments. Yeah, it I liked it a lot. I, the you. one thing that and that, you, you can tell me why you well, you figure it didn't go beyond one season, but the one th- the one thing I thought was watching it was that the gross out comedy sometimes would be so much. I thought to myself, I, I they must be having a hard time getting uh, advertisers for this uh, yeah. because be, because people companies would shy away, thinking, "Boy, they really they really went out there in this episode." I don't know if we want to associate our I product with that. Right. But. I think that's right. There was one episode, for example, where we were testing this new type of glue that was like a thousand times stronger than crazy glue it was the yeah. greatest adhesive and somehow my face got glued to jeff's bare ass yes <laughs> and so for the whole episode my face was pressed against his ass so to your yeah. point who the hell is going to advertise unless you're like also a glue i don't know. yeah other than glue makers, who was who going to advertise on a nutty show like that? Yeah. And there's definitely some stuff that happened on that show that you would not be able to do today in today's no. uh, climate. That's correct. It, it really pushed the boundaries. It did. Yeah. It did. Was the, the, what was the, was the one episode where, was it a, a drug or some, uh, some, there was a product that was taken and, and basically one of the characters became gay. Oh, my God. No, it wasn't exactly that. Both Jeff and I, we lost our memories, okay? Neither of us knew who we were. And there was a third character who was our neighbor, the crazy neighbor character. And he played a practical joke on us. He tried to convince us that we were gay. Right. Yes. And we were like, yes. And we were like, wow, that doesn't sound right. Just trust me. Like, what you guys need to do to get your memories back? Give each other, give each other a kiss, and that will you'll yeah. remember once you feel the kiss. You'll and we yeah. say, okay. Yeah. I mean, we gave each other just a, a quick peck on the lips, and then yeah. you pulled back, and and it the neighbors feel like, right. right, yeah, it doesn't feel. <laughs> the neighbors just no, 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 no. You got to get into it. You know, you got to really like make out, and then you'll remember how gay yeah. you were. And yeah. we started macking out on that. It was not. Pleasant for us to film. <laughs> no, your best like, friend. Tongue, yeah. like just disgusting. Yes. Over yes. The uh, talk about a violation of your traditional roles as best friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's funny. So, uh, and then, so you, you got to do one season on that. That was a lot of fun. And uh, mm-hmm. was that, was that a bit of a letdown when it didn't go to two or were you surprised or? Well, Jeff and I were we were joking when, when we were waiting to find out if the show was going to get picked up for second season. 
we said, well, it's, it's a win either way. If we go a second season, we get to, you know, make some more money and be on TV. And that mm-hmm. if it doesn't go another season, we don't have to do any more crazy shit. Because yeah. we did a lot of crazy shit. Like, yes. you, you know, yeah. making out with each other was just one thing. Every episode, yeah. we, you know, there was one episode, and I don't even remember what the setup was, but Jeff was banging a door against my head. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you might think watching it on TV, like, hey, how, how do they do that? How, how <laughs> they did it was he was banging a door against my head. Yeah. Hard. Oh, talk to us now then about shoot to marry. I mean, I don't, I'll let you talk about it because I, there's always that uh, danger that I'm going to, uh, <laughs> I'm going to leak something that's not helpful. <laughs> that's not helpful. Some spoiler. Uh, well, so why don't, why don't you tell me what, what the genesis was of that and, uh, and how, how it uh, came into play? Well, the, gen- the genesis was a bad breakup. This is yep. uh, over five years ago now. More than a bad breakup. It was a, a failed marriage proposal, which was uh, kind of insane mm-hmm. and difficult. And uh, I spent a couple of months crying on the couch after that, yeah. feeling, um, you know, just heartbroken and um, confused, full of questions. What the hell happened? What was this relationship? Uh, why did I propose just a million, a million questions um, and decided to put that into uh, a film. Yeah. So uh, I set out to film with beginning. I was filming with, you know, uh, my parents, my therapist, asking them questions about re- relationships. And, mm-hmm. uh, but eventually the idea became, I thought, you know, I, I'm, really should just be interviewing women mm-hmm. and, and I'm going to learn about relationships and women from women. And also who knows, I thought maybe I'll connect with one of these women and, and find love again. Right. Yeah. That what's what that must be uh, that, you know, that must be a bit of a tightrope. <laughs> walking, yeah. you know, doing a project like that. And, and, and more than any project you've done before, talk about being emotionally involved. It's your love yes. life. It is. Yes. And, and how, how did you, uh, did you, did you set out guidelines on how you were going to do that? How you were going to protect yourself or protect the people that you were, that you were filming or what, 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 you know, did you have any kind of safety net or something that you would set up for yourself or game plan? Or did you just throw yourself into it and say, let's see what happens? Yeah, I threw myself in and let's see what happens. Yeah, that's that's what happened. Um, <laughs> I knew that if I was going to make a movie where I was central to it, uh, that I would that I would have to be one hundred percent open and vulnerable, and you know, unafraid to potentially make myself look like an idiot. Because otherwise, you know, a doc about yourself is just really some, you know, a self-serving vanity project. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to do that. Um, I, I did want to meet someone. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, I was sort of doing, I suppose, two things at the same time. I was mm-hmm. making a documentary about interesting women. And I think I delivered that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And at the same time, I was trying to rebuild myself after the breakup and and find love again. To be honest, I didn't, you know, I I didn't actually think I was going to find love again. But I I what was most important to me was that I uh, really uh, sounds cheesy, but it's true is I needed to learn to to like like myself again. Yeah. I felt like shit. I felt I had, you know, for months after that breakup, the um, the proposal. I just I had a a voice running through my head, just feeding me really negative thoughts. Mm-hmm. Just that I'm that I'm garbage. I'm not lovable. All that kind of stuff that that we think after sure we've a relationship ends or we've been broken yeah. up with or had our heart broken. Yeah. And sure. The, the, the person who's supposed to care about you the most when they did, when they tell you that they don't want to be with you anymore, then <laughs> there's some serious soul searching that happens, whether or not that's yeah. uh, any of that information is valid or not. That's right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, no, I was in a hole for sure. I was really, and like I said earlier, it is my, my inclination is just to stay in and, and spend time by myself, which it's not healthy. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when I, when I, started filming the first thing I did was I just set up my camera in my apartment and I was just filming myself in my apartment. This is not in the movie. I, I just talking to the camera, just stream of consciousness mm-hmm. talking to the camera. I don't know what I, what the hell I thought I was doing, mm-hmm. but I thought it was just to try to sort out the, my thoughts. Yeah. And then at a certain point I thought, well, you know, this really is not healthy. I should leave the apartment. And that's when I thought just, you know, set out with my camera and start interviewing other people about about relationships and then a few months after that i sort of found the idea Mm -hmm. uh, which was okay i'm going to focus my interviews just on women and uh and rebuild myself that way and 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 learn from them and and i did it was it was an incredible experience meeting all of these people i i did learn so much Mm -hmm. one of the things i found about the film was it reminded me uh of uh camp hollywood in in a sense that um because of who you are and your demeanor uh you in camp hollywood there's there's you know at least um so one or two girls that you uh, you talked about in the in the film about being interested in would be nice if i could maybe ask her out on a date and that sort of thing and uh, just your kind of approach to dealing with those women was very disarming. And you really got some neat stuff out of them, you know, sort of directing, but not so, but you know, sort of not. But you got some really neat stuff out of those conversations with those women that you were able to draw them out and they let their guard down. Uh, mm-hmm. That was something I remember uh, really enjoying about Camp Hollywood. And here it is. It's all the way through in this film. Uh, you know, you're making yourself vulnerable to, to the women in the film and, uh, and they respond to it. And so you, you get, it's, it's very, it's very real. Uh, so that was one thing I really enjoyed about the film, but, uh, Good. you know, thank you. Yeah. And, and I, I did, I, you know, I think that I did want to get the women to, to open up to me. And so I think once they saw that I was open, and didn't uh, have any filter. It was just, I you know that gave them permission to do the same. Yeah, 
Yeah, because there's very honest, very honest uh, answers to some of your questions in the film. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I, so I like I like I said, I'm, I'm going to be careful about what I say here. But I, why don't you, you know, um, well, you can you can. Yeah, there's an interesting ending to the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I guess we'll let people uh, go out and uh, watch the film yes. and see uh, see where that journey takes you. Mm-hmm. So you got a chance to go out and uh, you went to uh, you took it out to some festivals. You got great reaction. Yes, I'm very fortunate because, you know, I got to premiere the film at, at Slamdance in January and which is an amazing experience. I was thrilled out of my mind mm-hmm. to get into Slamdance. Um, I'm still excited. Six months later, I still I'm still excited. I actually just sent an email to the woman who who manages slam dance just to say, you know, just, you know, I'm still excited that I got into slam. It was mind blowing. Um, you know, and I, I had gotten no's from some other festivals and well, you expect no's, you know, Mm -hmm. you know how competitive these festivals are. I mean, uh, they get thousands of submissions slam dance this year. They got 8,500 submissions. Mm -hmm. Uh, they chose 23 features and, but you know, the, I started getting emails coming in. I didn't uh, submit to too many festivals. I was selective. I submitted to maybe uh, 10 or 15 or something. But the email, the rejection emails start coming. They usually start with the word thank you. If you you read thank you, you're screwed. You don't have to read (laughs) beyond thank you. Yeah, yeah. And But then that email came in from Slandance that just said in all caps, congratulations. Mm -hmm. And what a thrill that was. Yeah. Um, and you do have to be careful about those too, because you, you only get one world premiere, right? You want to be very careful. It's kind of like your virginity. There's no putting that mm-hmm. back in the bottle. That's you know? right. So you got to pick a, an important film festival to, uh, to premiere at. So, and that's, that's, uh, in terms of documentaries, I mean, that's, that's, that's the one you want to be at. I think so. It was, I yeah. was, it was such a perfect fit and, uh, they do bring in the coolest indie films from all over the world. And, uh, and then to win the audience award was just, yeah. again, an absolute thrill. In fact, when I uh, told my parents that I'd gotten into the slam dance film, I had to explain to them what the hell that was. Mm-hmm. Tried to explain how, how competitive the whole thing is and and why it's exciting. And my, my dad, he he said, uh, he, he said, you're going to win an award. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, dad, don't do that to me. Like, <laughs> no, I'm not going to win an me. award. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's enough to just be in the festival. And please don't set up some expectation that I will then fail at. Yes. And, and you'll be disappointed. At. So please, let's just, but he kept repeating, but, <laughs> but you're going to win an award. I said, no, dad, please, let's just enjoy that I'm in the festival. And he says, you know, you're not setting up an expectation that's going to disappoint me. You know why? Why? Because you're going to win. He, just, <laughs> I, he said it 20 times yeah. leading up to the, me going. Anyway, day after I win the audience award, I call, still in Park City, Utah, and I call my dad. I said, Dad, guess what? What? I won an award. And he, <laughs> and he said, ah, oh, that's terrific. Well, I'll get your mother. Yeah. I said, Dad, did you hear what I just said? I, I, you remember you kept asking me, you're going to win an award. You're going to win. The audi- I won the audience award. Uh, I'm just playing uh, online chess. Yeah. Can I have your mother call you back? 
I mean, just to believe. <laughs> well, really, but, Stephen, it's it's about being, uh, you know, it's it's the honor. It's the it's, the, uh, it's yeah. not about winning, Stephen. I know. Yeah. I just my yeah, whole funny. my my dad has always been an inspiration to me because you know in the sign in the sign business he just always blew my mind as a kid making these huge neon signs. Mm -hmm. It's hard to compete as a kid with flashing neon signs. Yeah. Yeah. And so (laughs) I've always been just, you know, trying in one way or another to get my dad's attention and his approval and his respect creatively. I want him to respect me. So that has been a driver for me in my life. Yeah. uh, Sometimes it it works and sometimes it doesn't. It's hard to compete with the flashing A&A sign yes. on Young Street, isn't it? The, the, the Sam the Record Man sign. Sam the Record Man. Yeah. Sorry, I screwed yeah. that yeah. one up. Sam the Record Man. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, an iconic piece of uh, mm-hmm. uh, Toronto. Um, so, uh, yeah, and that, isn't that a that – I, I have the opportunity when uh, I was a little bit younger to uh, go to a few film festivals with a short film that I did, nowhere near, uh, you know, the same kind of exposure that you would have gotten with your film. But the thing I love the most about going to those things is they're just chock full of people who are so passionate and so mm-hmm. supportive and love each other's films so much. You know, you, you don't get a lot of people blowing smoke up your, your butt. You get a lot of people who – are have the same passion as you do and they're kind of in the same headspace as you and it's just a it's a it can be a real love fest going to those festivals it was a hundred percent it was a love fest very there was nothing pretentious about it uh i mean you, you go to some festivals the red carpet kind of festivals and they do tend to be uh, a little bit pretentious but slam dance was just uh just a great vibe like you said Mm-hmm. Just, just film lovers and good people, and uh, you meet people from all over the world. It was awesome. Loved it. Yeah. And so, what uh, do you do? You have something else that you're working on right now, or uh, what? Uh, or is that a fair question? You just finished this thing. You're, you're not even really finished it. You're still doing press for it, and uh, it's still uh, very much uh, uh, something that's being enjoyed by the public. I'm thinking about what's next, mm-hmm. um, and I do like. Uh, I do like exploring these themes of relationships and, uh, and might continue down that path. Um, Mm -hmm. I I do want to make another documentary um, because uh, I I enjoy it. I I think, you know, I tried for years to, I was writing screenplays and I had a couple of TV series in development, but they never really, uh, never really took off writing scripted series and movies never came that easily to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't a a bad writer. I'm, I think I'm good, but I, but I, I'm slow and I struggle with, with writing. It just doesn't come easily. Right. Documentary filmmaking, uh, is a good fit for me. Mm -hmm. It's storytelling that comes more easily to me because most of the storytelling happens in the edit. Right. You know, you might start with the with the rough outline of how you think things are going to go, and then life happens, and then you you edit it together. And mo- most of my uh, background has been in editing, so sure. Um, I think I've just um, documentary just just suits me. Yeah, and it's one of the uh, the documentary style too is one of the few places where you can sometimes put the cart before the horse. You can be out with your camera and say, "Well, look, we, we've got the camera. Let's shoot this." And who knows? Maybe 
maybe this might become something or maybe we can work it into the story. It doesn't have to be necessarily scripted. Exactly. Exactly. You can go and shoot, you know, hundreds of hours of footage and you find your story in there. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've been asking a lot of my guests this question, and I don't even know if it's a fair question because I don't know the answer to my, myself, but where, where, where do you see yourself in 10 years? What would you like to be doing in 10 years? Well, uh, I, 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 my first thought, honestly, is I just, I just want to be alive. Yes, that's a good one. That's enough. <laughs> that's, that's... Not that I'm expecting to die in the next 10 years, but uh, death is frightening to me. So yeah. if... You know, if you tell me I'm alive in 10 years, that's enough. Mm -hmm. I'll be happy. Um, but I, I hope in 10 years that I'll um, have made another documentary or two. Because mm -hmm. um, I want to build on that. It's, uh, you know, uh, quite a bit of time passed between Camp Hollywood and Shoot to Mary. And um, because I tried a lot of other stuff and some stuff worked and some stuff didn't. Um, but... I think I'm going to stay, stay in the genre and um, get something out there uh, sooner than, than later because I, uh, I enjoy it. Well, it's a great film. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Thank you. And uh, I think people will see themselves in the film and make people think about their own relationships. And, and uh, you know, because there's, there's something you mentioned something in the film that really hit home with me. And it was about the relationship that, that spawns the, the story. And that is, uh, uh, I was in a situation like that where my long-term relationship had broken up and, and I found myself in a position where I was like, uh, I suddenly realized that I had lost myself somewhere, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, when you're going through life and you're busy with thing with things and, and you're, you're, you know, all those little things that we all worry about. You don't notice this stuff until your, you know, your relationship falls apart. And then you're like, what, where, where did I, where, where, you know, where did I leave off? I feel like I've lost myself somewhere. Uh, mm -hmm. And that, that seems to be a, you know, a theme in the film and, and then finding your way back from that place, figuring out who you are. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a lot of people will really identify with, uh, with that part of, of the story, because I think everybody's at one point in their life been in the situation where, you know, their relationship fell apart and they had to kind of re rethink who they were and, and, uh, and figure out how to get back up on their feet. So, mm -hmm. uh, that big part of that film, I, I think that that's one of the reasons why the film has a lot of heart is, uh, because you're very honest and real about what that's like. And I, I think the, uh, the audience will really appreciate that and, and, and enjoy that. Thank you, David. My, my therapist gave me a good line. Uh, when two people get married, they become one, but mm -hmm. which one? Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it, it's yeah. true. You don't want to lose yourself to the other person. Mm -hmm. You want, you know, a relationship, if it's done right, you want to, each person should make the other better, yeah. help them to be their best person. But you, Got to hang on to yourself. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, anyways, I'm glad I'm glad that you connected with the movie. And that's uh, nice to hear. Uh, well, thank you, Stephen, for your time. I appreciate this very much. Once again, great film, Shoot to Marry. Everybody should go out and check out, uh, Google it, find out where it's playing uh, because it's well worth a watch. And uh, we will be watching to see what you come up with next time, Steve Markle. So thank, thank you for chatting you, with me today. It was a real pleasure. You, thank you for, for the chat. I loved it. You are a wonderful man. You have a deep, sexy voice. 
and I love talking. <laughs> all right. Well, I love talking to you today. So take care of yourself, my friend. You too. All the best. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Markle. Be sure to look for Steven's new film, Shoot to Marry, on iTunes, Amazon Prime, Google Play, or wherever else you usually source your favorite movies and TV shows. Also, if you want to check out Steve's 2004 documentary, Camp Hollywood, you can find that one on Amazon Prime. Thank you once again to Mr. Jerry Stamp, who wrote and performed the Cool Story theme song and all other jingles and stings that appear on the show. Do yourselves a favor and look for Jerry's music wherever you stream. And finally, thank you for listening. Until next time, Pura Vida. Everybody's had some adventures. Everybody's had a few close calls. Everybody's got a story. What's yours?